This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. When I first read the book title, Planting in a Post-Wild World, I thought, what does that even mean, post-wild? But then I read this early passage in the book, quote, a new way of thinking is emerging. It looks at the archipelago of leftover land, suburban yards, utility easements, parking lots, road rights of way, and municipal drainage channels as territories of vast potential. And I thought, this is an intriguing conversation. So when I heard that Thomas Rayner, co-author with Claudia West of Planting in a Post-Wild World, will be a keynote speaker at Pacific Horticulture's Gardening Summit, Changing Times, Changing Gardens, this coming October in Santa Rosa, California, I thought I'd reach out, and he is joining us today. Thomas is described on his own website, Landscape of Meaning, as a horticultural futurist fascinated by the intersection of wild plants and human culture, a landscape architect by profession and a gardener by obsession. Thomas has worked on projects such as the U.S. Capitol Grounds, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, and the New York Botanical Garden, but he is happiest puttering in his small garden in Washington, D.C. He states, you should use more natives, plant more daringly, and loosen up that landscape for crying out loud. Welcome, Thomas. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I would like to start at the beginning, your beginning. What influences in your life brought you to a love of plants, gardens, landscapes? I think I was just one of those kids who, you know, would take the apple seed and go stick it in the, in the garden. I was definitely uh, someone who was interested in plants from a, a young age. Um, I do remember, I grew up in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and remember uh, first efforts of uh, wrestling with a uh, pretty nasty piece of clay to try to grow tomatoes, but um, as hot and humid as it was and, you know, using the pickaxe uh, certainly didn't deter me. It really uh, lit me up even more. At what point did you know that working with plants or designing gardens would become your full career? I think it was after uh, a liberal arts degree. I was an English and philosophy major, and I really loved that. Um, and I just wanted to go to school more. Uh, <laughs> I worked at a law firm, and uh, most of the lawyers I was working for that summer told me not to be a lawyer. Um, so I didn't know what to do. And I, I kind of found out rather randomly that one could get a degree in landscape architecture uh, without having an undergrad in that, a master's degree in that, um, which sounded great. I didn't really know what it was. It sounded like more school, but I knew it had something to do with plants. So uh, on one of those uh, rather narrow whims that ends up being a major life decision, um, kind of decided to go that route. And it's been, uh, with this little forethought as went into that decision, it's been a great, great decision for me and and one I've really loved. Given the sort of early history you just laid out for us, talk about what you find meaningful about the making of gardens. I think to me, it's, it's really interesting being both a landscape architect. So I design a lot of land for others, uh, whether it's uh, government clients or um, who work on embassy projects all over the world and big parks. Uh, And so that process is essentially uh, 
creating an image of what the land's going to be and you know, putting that on a sheet of paper and trying to execute that in some way, which is very fascinating and kind of very conceptual and uh, you get your hands dirty. But the thing about gardening is that it is not about a picture of land. It's really about a relationship. And it's the relational aspect of gardening that I find so endlessly rewarding. You know, it's not about imposing an idea. I mean, it is a little bit. I mean, you have an idea about what it is, but it's uh, the conversation, it's the feedback, it's the watching my idea fail over and over again and then <laughs> adapting uh, and putting another plant in that actually wants to grow in that place and what I thought would do and watching it evolve through self-seeding and uh, maturing. You and Claudia West, a German-born, Maryland-based landscape designer, co-authored this book entitled Planting in a Post-Wild World. It came out last year, 2015, Mm -hmm. and um, I think has, has gotten quite a bit of attention in a world that has a lot of gardening books out there. Yes. What... What was your original intent with it, and what talk about the process that brought it to what it ultimately became? Sure, I think we really wanted to write a book that we that hadn't been written. We really wanted to uh, address some of the the struggles we felt in our daily practice, and for us. We, we both had very different uh, practices. I, I had uh, started off in a firm that did just exquisite work, really beautiful gardens, a lot of uh, high-end residential work uh, all over the country, uh, a lot of private developer work. And we, we created beautiful gardens. It was a great place to work. Um, they had a wonderful portfolio. But I swapped, and I'm now working with a firm around 2009 that does primarily public work which I really, really love. It's really, you know, I have a heart for projects that affect a lot of people, parks, uh, embassies, streetscapes. Uh, But one of the challenges I had in that transition was really understanding that when you have gardens or when you have planting, for example, that that gets a lot of resources of either money or having professional gardeners that come in after and maintain it, you can do certain things that you can't do in more public-style projects that might have money to be planted, but don't have the kind of time and expertise of, you know, trained gardeners to maintain them. You know, when you think about public parks, you know, these are sites that want to be sustainable. They want to be beautiful. They're public. A lot of people are looking at them. Um, But these are not, you know, agencies that have the ability to uh, have trained horticulturalists really keep that up. So to me, and Claudia was dealing with many of the same issues as well. I think we wanted to understand how we could do beautiful but ecologically beneficial planting uh, in sites that weren't really going to be perennial borders, mm-hmm. you know, in sites that weren't going to be the A zone of a garden, you know, in, in sites that um, need um, ecological functionality, need diversity, need to look good because a lot of people are looking at them. And neither of us really felt like... Uh, we had the toolkit, and, or, or that was really being taught, any, being offered anywhere else. So we spent, uh, we decided we wanted to do this. We, we talked about kind of this gap of knowledge, and it really went off to wanted to write a book, primarily about native plants, but not just about where plants come from. Really focusing on how to put plants together mm-hmm. to kind of deal with some of those challenges. 
You, you each write an introduction for those uh, listeners who haven't yet read the book uh, about what it was to grow up in the places you were in at the time and the both loss of wildness happening and or for Claudia, this very real growing up in a an industrial Germany where wildness didn't exist and watching some wildness very hopefully and very poignantly trying to return in areas. And this idea of post-wild, what brought you to a really a fairly emphatic um, belief that it is much more important that we think about what plants do in their places rather than always focusing rigidly on where they come from. Yeah, I, I think both of us came to plants from uh, really a love of native plants. We, we, we both are uh, very strong advocates of the use of native plants, and we understand their uh, not only kind of their general adaptability, but uh, all the faunal relationships, you know, this insects and, and wildlife that really depend on those, those kind of plants. Um, I think in, in being in that world, I think we also were feeling a little frustrated with some of, as the native plant movement has um, gone from being kind of a niche um, interest in horticulture to really being mainstream. I mean, it's really remarkable in the last 10 years how um, the rise of native plants is in, in kind of current language and lexicon and popular culture has really become uh, very, very much a central part of horticulture now. I mean, you really mm-hmm. can't go to a garden conference without having some speaker on native plants or some interest in that, So, uh, which has all been great. But I think as that message has gone public, um, we've been seeing a lot of kind of mis- either misinterpretations of that or how the message has kind of gone off. I, I see a lot of projects uh, here in Washington, D.C. area, for example, where a landscape architect designed a, a condo building or an urban plaza. And in order to get the lead credit, you know, the, which is the leading kind of sustainability metric, they will put use an all-native landscape in the plaza, but they'll use a monoculture of inkberry, which is uh, here on the East Coast, it's a uh, wetland, evergreen wetland plant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're getting credit for having a fully native landscape, but at the same time, it's a monoculture of a wetland plant in a dry area. So while the messages of where a plant comes from is, you know, very important, we really felt like how it was getting applied was missing, missing the boat a lot. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there's the other thing that was bothering us a little bit was, or bothering me in particular was, I think the so much of the folks of us who love native plants come out of it through a sense of the tragedy of their loss. You know, I think our our, our zeal and wanting more people to use them is understanding how much we're losing those native plants in the wild. And I think that that tends to promote a kind of nostalgia for the past um, that um, can be a little bit hard. And I, I think making the conversation really focus on the fact of, of the reality of where we are in, in the world, that um, our current landscapes are not pure now, um, even even the national parks. I mean, the, we really live in a world in which uh, the planting is mongrel, hybrid, impure, and kind of out of control. And even our best efforts at restorations, uh, for example, you know, when we've worked on projects that do a lot of invasive removals where they replant natives. The only way to keep the invasives from staying out is to keep 
planting more natives and keep weeding out the invasives. I mean, it's really a process that's more like gardening. Mm-hmm. So, so I think kind of understanding that we're, we're dealing with this hybrid world already and, and then focusing on strategies that address that context rather than uh, glorify some past that really never can be again. Uh, we just wanted to get real, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I think we really wanted to, to start thinking about how plants get put together. We definitely focusing on native plants, but you know, there's some context rooftops and urban context where if, if mixing in uh, a very ornamental exotic that's also uh, beneficial uh, makes sense, um, then you know, we didn't want to. We didn't want to be purists because we didn't feel like that was a very practical way of addressing some of these challenges. So, mm-hmm. especially going forward, um, it is like there's there's even listening to this idea that you know all of our plantings at this point are mongrel is is painful, right? I get this. It little, is. Like, it is. Like, it's hard for me even to say it. I mean, yeah. I I, I kind of get the. You know, in, in the, the my story you referred to at the beginning of the book was the story of kind of being a kid on the edge of suburbia and having just this a huge number of square miles of Piedmont forest that backed up to our house. And I mean, the, the memories of sitting in beech groves and, um, you know, catching crawdads and then watching that by the time I was in high school all develop to the worst kind of suburban track housing, you know, mm-hmm. a vinyl siding track housing, the, the creeks where we caught crawdads are now pipes under a super target parking lot. So I, I you know, say all this with a deep sense of uh, the loss, mm-hmm. um, you know, the tragedy of what is lost. And, and, and it's not to, you know, to say that things are out of control. It's not, this is not anti-conservation. You know, yeah. I, this is, uh, I, I think we need conservation. I think all the efforts to go back to these more pristine national parks and, and keep them is... Um, is is uh, pristine as we can uh, really matters. It's just where I am and where I practice is more urban suburban areas, and I think nature doesn't only ha- nature doesn't have to just be our national parks. I mean, nature can be the strips along the highway. Nature can be our suburban office parks. Nature can be our backyards. And I think if we understand that, um, I think it was that landscape architect Martha Schwartz had this great quote that you know. Americans treat nature the way the Victorians treated women as either virgins or whores. <laughs> and, and I think that's true. I mean, for us, if, if it's not this national, if, if nature is not this pristine uh, calendar uh, photograph in, in a national park, then it's not nature. You know, our backyards aren't really nature. And I think we really have to kind of get over that mentality. We really have to start looking at all of these uh, random pieces, these strips in our cities as nature. And, and the second we do that, then we realize we're gardeners. We can be stewards and we can kind of open up our strategies to how we put nature back. Uh, because we do believe, as, as depressing as the loss is, we do believe the optimistic side is that we, that we can make a difference and that um, we can rewild um, a lot of these areas. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're talking with Thomas Brainer, co-author of Planting in a Post-Wild World, in which he and Claudia West advocate for designing our gardens and cultivated areas as resilient plant communities, emphasizing compatible species that work together. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. 
If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Before the break, we began our conversation with Thomas Rayner, co-author with German-born, Maryland-based landscape designer Claudia West of Planting in a Post-Wild World. We're back after a break to continue our conversation about how and why to consider our gardens and plantings as interpretations rather than rote replications of natural plant communities in which we use compatible species that form interlocking layers working together. Welcome back. Walk us through, if you had, you know, three or four of these steps that you would like to encourage listeners to, to listen to, to, to try in their own areas, whether it's the parking strip, the roof, the, you know, roundabout in the middle of the, the street. Walk us through what those might be, Thomas. I think the biggest one would be to, to if, if we can not look at our plants so much as individual objects, but really understand them as systems, then, then all, all the benefits of plants really get amplified and magnified once they are growing. And, and for us, those systems were the plant communities, uh, which we were so inspired by, both kind of the native ones or even something as uh, functional and robust as a weedy plant community. Um, so I, I think the first idea is, you know, if you think about pulling a plant in your landscape, you know, not just pulling one, but thinking about how it might interact with other ones. And, and really look at our yards um, and try to find ways in which we could add more biodiversity, you know, more plants that are proven to sustain fauna. And I think the American suburban landscape in particular has a lot of space in it for more plants. I mean, we can, uh, we might have some clump of roses in parts of our yard, but, you know, what can we put underneath that? Um, one of the things we really love about design plant communities is that they really are layered. They're plants that cover the ground underneath. They're plants that uh, really grow one on top of the other. Mm-hmm. And it's this kind of interwoven matrix that really makes these communities so uh, adaptable and so resilient. And so we, we can start to make our own landscapes a little bit more like that. Uh, we can, uh, you know, just by start looking where we have a lot of mulch, for example, and replacing that mulch with green mulch. Uh, you know, that's, that's just more plants. Um, or, or looking at places where we do have maybe green mulch and thinking kind of what taller, bigger plants can we put in there. So um, ultimately, we think there's just a lot of space for more biodiversity. And, and, and I think the other point we really want to get in is not only just kind of more plants, but starting to think about how we can manage plantings more than, than maintain them. You know, really where we're, we're not maintenance is really one prescriptive set of actions for this plant, you know, this plant is a water hog, so I need a water. This plant, I need a deadhead. This plant needs a little bit of fertilizer. And it's kind of getting away from that idea and thinking about if we have plants more systems in our yards, you know, what kind of more management things can we do to, to either encourage more biodiversity, um, to, to incur less work for us mm-hmm. in our landscape so that we have uh, yards that we can, you know, enjoy more rather than uh, uh, labor at so much. Um, but but really kind of encourage, I think, I think more, more life, more layers, uh, and a little bit more looseness. And I love this idea of these interlocking plants that cover the ground, um, which gets to that layered and, and definitely is the way systems work when we see them and they're successful in the wild. And you have some very nice graphs um, 
in the book on uh, the sort of ebb and flow of different plants in relationship to one another, different heights, different needs, but that are complementary. So give us a specific example um, using the kinds of plants you might layer together. And I'm, I'm looking at the book right now, Thomas, on page 158 and 159. You have um, what are really beautiful, colorful um strips of low mixed meadow plantings in an urban design that cover the ground in a way so that you do it purposefully so that the invasive weed seeds maybe don't have space to get a, a foothold. Right, yes. I, th- I think so much of what we, we really loved about naturally occurring plant communities is that layered structure. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we kind of see, you know, if you see a meadow in the wild, you see the, the flowers up top and you see the, the beautiful seed heads, but there's a whole range of plants that cover the base of those plants and hold, hold the ground tightly there. And, and all those kind of ground covering species are incredibly functional, as you mentioned, because bare soil, uh, particularly in urban areas, is really prone to weeds or invasive plants or, or just disturbance. And once you have disturbance, plantings really start falling apart unless you have a lot of maintenance. So our idea, you know, if, if you wanted to depict something, you pick some flowering meadow plants, some echinaceas, some uh, Russian sage, some uh, um, asters, you know, all of these are kind of mid-height plants with flowers, but not all of those are great ground cover plants. So then, you know, we really look at you can kind of lay those out in, in a design or think about where you want your flowers, you know, those really colorful things. But then think about, you know, there's a whole range of things we might get plant at the feet of those other plants, whether those be, and, and those quite uh, frankly tend to be less sexy plants. They tend to be, you know, green, boring sedges, uh, creeping rhizominous plants, um, uh, maybe some different types of sedums, depending where you are. Um, that really kind of hold the ground, uh, but their point is to be functional. And so what we liked about a design plant community is that you can kind of have this functional layer covering soil, uh, but the, they don't have to be so ornamental. And then we kind of on top of that have, um, you know, more structural plants and more ornamental plants that we typically see in our gardens um, kind of growing through that matrix. Um, and, and the result is something that we think will ultimately be uh, certainly more biodiverse, but a little less work because we're really relying on that, that green mulch layer to, to do so much of the ground holding, um, you know, preventing soil erosion, preventing disturbance, um, keeping, keeping the, the whole mix more stable. And on page 173, you have a wonderful kind of visual of this layering from a few dimensions, which is partly what I love about it, of these different layers you're talking about. And in in this image, you have a structural layer wherein you have a tree that's providing a canopy, but on another dimension, it's also an extensive root system that is interacting with the root systems of the other plants. Also on this structural level, you have a beautiful uh, open flowering, I think it looks like a, a Joe pie weed. Yeah, that's um, right. And then below that, in what you term the seasonal theme lever, layer, you have these um, the bold kind of flowering plants that are a little more uh, showy. The Joe pie weed is very showy, but it's not expansive across the whole planting. And here you have the echinaceas, and it looks like a, a liatris. And then below, and, and they have a very different root profile down through the soil. And then you have that ground cover layer you're talking about, which would be, you know, maybe, uh, as you say, like little sedges or sedums or, you know, maybe a short grass 
Um, and it really demonstrates all the different ways that these are interacting together and creating yeah. this interlocking community. Yeah, I, I think one of our challenges and the things we debated probably the hardest was how do you take all of the layers of all the different plant communities in the world and kind of summarize them into, you know, something that's useful for gardeners and designers. And in some ways, we probably overly simplified that, but we, we thought kind of a, a radical simplification of that was kind of necessary to make it more accessible. And so we really try to translate those ecological layers into a horticultural language so those three layers you mentioned, the structural, the seasonal theme, and the ground cover really are descriptive of kind of garden characteristics. You know, we, we understand ground covers. We understand kind of flowering seasonal waves of color. We understand kind of structural pieces in the gardens. But in many ways, you know, kind of the way those three layers work really are uh, different ecologically. You know, in the, the, in, in the root structures of a structural perennial, for example, like that Joe Pye weed, it really is, um, uh, or even some of the seasonal themes where they have these tap roots that are meant to drill through the fibrous roots of other grasses, um, really kind of highlights how in nature plants inhabit different niches in both space and time, you know, that the root structures are different in different plants. And that really is the secret of how to get great diversity um, at the same time you get great stability. It's not just about cramming a bunch of plants together. It's really about kind of uh, putting together compatible plants like a jigsaw puzzle so that, you know, different root structures can inhabit different spaces and we can just get more life out of it. And, and getting away from uh, big massing, kind of big blocks of plants. Um, and it's not that we can't still have massing in some of those upper layers or, or having patterns because patterns do matter. You know, it, mm -hmm. it helps us to see, see plantings. But we can do this kind of patterning in the upper layers but still get a lot of functionality and diversity in those lower layers. So I'd like to end with you reading a passage from the book. Okay. The time is right for a renaissance of horticulture. Design plant communities require an ecological understanding of plants, but even more, they need designers with an eye for combinations, a flair for color, and an intuitive sense of natural harmony. They need gardeners who can find a place to plant, even among skyscrapers and row houses. They need plant lovers who understand that we don't need to go to a national park to have a spiritual experience of nature. We can have such experiences in our backyards, parks, and rooftops. If it is true that the next renaissance of human culture will be the reconstruction of the natural world in our cities and suburbs, then it will be designers and gardeners, not politicians, who will lead this revolution. And plants will be the center of it all. Thomas Rayner, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed this. It's, it's been an honor, and I look forward to attending your talk about upcoming, um, at the upcoming Changing Times, Changing Gardens Summit in Santa Rosa. Thank you. Me too. Thomas Rayner is a horticultural futurist, fascinated by the intersection of wild plants and human culture, a landscape architect by profession and a gardener by obsession. Thomas has worked on projects such as the U.S. Capitol Grounds, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, and the New York Botanical Garden. He is co-author with Maryland-based, German-born landscape designer Claudia West. Join us again next week as the conversations on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places continues. 
Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos and information on how to register for the Changing Times Changing Garden Summit, please visit JewelGarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.